This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky. A few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky. Filling it with sun. Higher and higher. Filling it with sun. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Today, we're going to hear Becca Tarnas presenting and defending her doctoral thesis that she received around this time last year, titled The Back of Beyond, The Red Books of Carl Jung and J.R.R. Tolkien. I love Becca's work in the imaginal realm, and I've featured her work in her talks a few times here over the past few years while she's been working on her doctoral thesis. Carl Jung's Red Book is filled with dialogue, conversations held between Jung and his soul. In a passage near the beginning of the book, the following exchange takes place. I indignantly answered, do you call light what we men call the worst darkness? Do you call day night? To this, my soul spoke a word that roused my anger. My light is not of this world. I cried, I know of no other world. The soul answered, should it not exist because you know nothing of it? Should this other world not exist because we know nothing of it? Or rather, should it not exist because the scientific materialist paradigm claims to know nothing of it? Today, I wish to speak to you about this other world through the lens of a synchronicity, a synchronicity between two red books, each crafted in the first half of the 20th century. First, let me introduce Jung's red book. 
In his late 30s, the depth psychologist Carl Jung began to have profound visionary experiences, powerful fantasies, expressions of what he called active imagination. He inscribed these visions in a large book written in black and red letters, accompanied by rich illustrations, bound by two covers of red leather. He called the book Liber Novus, which means the new book, but it is known simply as the Red Book. And now let me introduce J.R.R. Tolkien's The Red Book of Westmarch. Tolkien set out to write a mythology, a body of legends, myths, and romantic tales that would be linked in a majestic whole. This mythology eventually took the form of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and The Silmarillion. But within the world of the mythology itself, these tales have been written out in a book that's been passed on from generation to generation. A large book inscribed in black and red letters, accompanied by rich illustrations, bound by two covers of red leather. Tolkien presents himself simply as the translator of this work, and the book is known as the Red Book of Westmarch. So at first glance, the parallel names of Jung's and Tolkien's Red Books just seem to be an odd coincidence. The books actually couldn't share anything in common. On the one hand, we have Jung, one of the founders of depth psychology, <laughs> an explorer of the unconscious, of archetypes, of the phenomenon of synchronicity, a Swiss man born in 1875. And then on the other hand, we have Tolkien, firmly English, a philologist and medievalist, eventually the famous author of The Lord of the Rings, one of the founders of the genre of fantasy literature, a younger man born in 1892. At first glance, there seems to be little common ground between the two men, other than the smoking of pipes, let alone between their work. I came to Jung's Red Book already with a strong background in Tolkien studies, having been an avid explorer of Middle-earth since age nine. When I first encountered Jung's Red Book, I felt like I was looking at a book from Tolkien's world. The style of the calligraphy, the ornamented letters, even the illustrations felt similar. A certain resonance seemed to exist between the two bodies of work a convergence of images, a synchronicity, to use Jung's terminology, a synchronicity of imagination. My dissertation is an exploration of this synchronicity. In it, I demonstrate the numerous parallels between the two red books, parallels in timing, in imagery, and narrative. These are present despite the two men having no direct contact with each other. These correlations could be dismissed as mere coincidence. But what if they're not? What then might they imply about their source, which seems to be accessible through the imagination? In my dissertation, I'm presenting the idea that the synchronicity of the two red books ontologically demonstrates the reality of the imagination as a collective source of participatory knowledge. I'm also presenting the resonances and some discordancies between Jung's theory of the collective unconscious and Tolkien's notion of fairy, 
or what Henri Corbin called the mundus imaginalis, the imaginal realm. We access this co-creative source through the imagination. The imaginal realm is both objectively real and also participatively enacted. I've structured my dissertation in the form of a journey in seven stages. It begins in the external world of consensus reality and it moves inward to another realm. When the threshold is crossed, the world on the inside opens out into a vast landscape that is as infinite as the outer. The first two chapters engage with the circumstances of Tolkien's and Jung's lives, exploring the conditions, talents, interests, and proclivities of both men to better understand what went into the creation of the two red books. The first parallel that stood out is one of timing. Carl Jung began his red book period so the time of his psychological descent when the fantasy images began coming to him in waking life in 1913. At the same time, J.R.R. Tolkien began making an unusual series of illustrations in a sketchbook that he called the Book of Ishness. Virtually simultaneously, both men took an unusual turn in their lives. They turned away from the outer images, from the world of common day, and focused instead upon the inner images of imagination. Jung's Red Book period is considered to have spanned the years 1913 to 1930, but the primary content of the visions came to him from late 1913 through about 1917. Most of the sketches in Tolkien's Book of Ishness were done over a shorter period of time from December of 1911 through the summer of 1913. He made his earliest Ishnesses, his first imaginal drawings. But Tolkien actually continued to add illustrations to the Book of Ishness up until 1928. So almost the exact same years as Jung's Red Book period. Many of these images depict an entrance, a crossing of a threshold, or some fantastical landscape. Perhaps one of the most striking images in the Book of Vishnus is this one, titled End of the World. You can see here a small figure stepping off a cliff by the sea. Yes, the image of a man stepping off a cliff and the title End of the World seem somber, even depressing. But perhaps they convey a dual meaning. This isn't only the end of the world, referring to its demise or the death of this particular man. But it's the end of the world, as in it's the end of the known world. He's reached the edge and he wants to continue his journey. One can see the end of the world as a symbol of the threshold that Tolkien crossed at this time, the doorway to the imaginal into what he called the realm of fairy. Here are a few more images from Tolkien's Book of Ishness to give you a fuller sense of his, of his visions. This is eeriness. Wickedness. Under ten Ishness. This one's paired with one called grown up Ishness. Beyond. 
My title, The Back of Beyond, is also drawn from one of Tolkien's Ishnesses. Alongside these visionary drawings, another form of creativity was emerging through Tolkien as well, the arts of language. Tolkien was trying his hand at writing poetry and prose not only in English, but in languages of his own invention, Elvish languages. My govanen, melanin, elen sila lumen omentielvo. Tolkien wrote the first story of Middle-earth in September 1914. Although the primary creative periods for both Jung and Tolkien were during these potent years of the 1910s, they each spent the rest of their lives developing the material they encountered during this time. One of the earliest visions that came to both Jung and to Tolkien was of major significance to both of them, an overpowering flood. Tolkien sometimes called it the Great Wave. The first of Jung's flood visions came to him while on a train journey on a, in October 1913. To quote Jung's words, I was suddenly overcome in broad daylight by a vision. I saw a terrible flood that covered all the northern and low-lying lands between the North Sea and the Alps. It reached from England up to Russia and from the coast of the North Sea right up to the Alps. I saw yellow waves, swimming rubble, and the death of countless thousands. Two weeks later, Jung was subjected to the vision again. This time it was accompanied by a voice that was saying, look at it, it is completely real, and it will come to pass. You cannot doubt this. An uncannily similar vision came repeatedly to J.R.R. Tolkien in dreams and also while awake. He called it his Atlantis haunting. In Tolkien's words, this legend or myth or dim memory of some ancient history has always troubled me. In sleep, I had the dreadful dream of the ineluctable wave either coming out of the quiet sea or coming and towering over the green inlands. It still occurs occasionally, though now exercised by writing about it. It always ends by surrender, and I wake gasping out of deep water. Tolkien wrote of the great wave again and again throughout his life. In each telling, the wave destroys a great civilization. A vast abyss opens in the sea, and it swallows an inhabited island in all its glory. When World War I broke out in August 1914, Carl Jung recognized that his vision of the destructive flood was prophetic of the war. His interior images were reflecting the external political and cultural situation in Europe. So when the war broke out, Jung realized he wasn't going mad as he'd been afraid that he was doing. Rather, his internal experience was mirroring the madness unfolding in the external world. Now, Tolkien fought in that same war. Needless to say, the war had a tremendous effect upon Tolkien, particularly the Battle of the Somme, in which two of his closest friends were killed. Everything he wrote afterwards bears the trauma of the Great War. My third chapter in the dissertation explores the liminal space between worlds. I look at Jung's practice of active imagination in which 
you hold in your awareness an image from a dream or a vision until you come into active relationship to it. You can then dialogue with the figures that emerge. You can enter into the drama itself. I'm suggesting that active imagination can be understood not simply as a means of accessing the unconscious in an objective sense, but rather as a form of participation in the collective unconscious. I would posit, drawing in part on Jorge Ferrer's work in transpersonal theory, that active imagination can be understood as a form of participatory knowing. The fantasies that Jung encountered through active imagination can be seen as transpersonal participatory events. A co-creative inaction between the human organ of the imagination and the non-determined archetypal power of the collective unconscious. Now, uh, based on evidence in his writings, it seems Tolkien was also engaging in a similar method to Jung's practice of active imagination, and perhaps also was having visionary experiences that he called fairy and dramas. Tolkien spoke of how his stories arose in his mind as given. He would say, I always had the sense of recording what was already there somewhere, not of inventing. The there somewhere to which he is referring is fairy, the imaginal realm. Tolkien described this realm as follows. The land of fairy story is wide and deep and high. In that land, a man may perhaps count himself fortunate to have wandered, but its very mystery and wealth make dumb the traveler who would report. The fairy gold too often turns to withered leaves when it is brought away. All that I can ask is that you, knowing all these things, will receive my withered leaves as a token at least that my hand once held a little of the gold. My hand once held a little of the gold. Jung made a similar statement, a statement that mirrors symbolically what Tolkien said. This is Jung. <coughs> I felt that at some time or other I had passed through the Valley of Diamonds, but I could convince no one, not even myself when I looked at them more closely, that the specimens I had brought back were not mere pieces of gravel. The Valley of Diamonds the gold of fairy. Both men were describing a place they had seen, a place that couldn't be fully captured in language. To construct a theoretical framework for interpreting the synchronicity of the two red books, I drew on a number of diverse streams of thought. On the one hand, Jung's practice of active imagination and the theory of the collective unconscious. I drew on Tolkien's theory of imagination, which he called subcreation. Subcreation is essentially a process in two primary stages. The experience, the experience of images arising through the imagination, and then the art of shaping those images into the final result, which Tolkien called a subcreation. Subcreation in part stems from Coleridge and the English Romantic tradition. But I've also drawn together Henri Corbin's Sufi mysticism, James Hillman's archetypal psychology, a hint of platonic philosophy, and contemporary transpersonal theory as well. There are, of course, critical differences between each of these pers perspectives. Yet, 
together they provide an illuminating parallax view on the creative imagination and on the imaginal realm. The remaining four chapters of my dissertation take place, you could say, within the imaginal realm itself. To be clear, these are not the same books. We can learn as much from their differences as from their similarities, but I'm presenting more of the similarities here today. Jung's first fully immersive vision begins at the entrance to a dark cave, which is guarded by a dwarf. Inside the cave, there's icy water and an island rock at the middle. A glowing red crystal is on this rock. A massive black scarab moves through the scene. In this chapter, I explore the numerous parallels between this first fantasy of Jung's and scenes in Tolkien's works of the many underworld, underground journeys that take place in Middle-earth. The dark journey through the lost dwarf realm, Moria, Frodo and Sam's fearful passage through the midnight tunnel of the monstrous spider Shelob, who resembles the giant scarab that Jung encountered. Aragorn and the Grey Company's journey through the paths of the dead, where they encounter a host of the dead, a parallel to Jung's engagement with the host of the dead deeper in the Red Book. Bilbo's encounter with the dragon Smog in the halls of Erebor, the Lonely Mountain, and Bilbo's fateful encounter with the twisted creature Gollum, whose lair is deep within a mountain cavern upon a little island rock set within the icy waters of a subterranean lake. Upon that rock, like the red crystal in Jung's vision, lay long hid the One Ring, the ring of power made by the Dark Lord Sauron. In both red books, the heart of the narrative begins here, upon this island rock, where a lost treasure of unknown power is hid, waiting for a new hand to grasp it. This first vision of Jung's also bears some resemblance to this ishness of Tolkien's, which I'm returning to, titled Before, drawn just one year earlier. You can see the dark, oppressive entryway that pulls your gaze toward the mysterious red glow at the end of the passage. The particular shape of this imposing doorway appears again and again in Tolkien's later writings and artwork, usually accompanied by descriptions of foreboding, fear, and the unknown. It's a doorway underground, a doorway to the underworld. The encounter with the dragon is repeated throughout both Red Books as well, both in the narrative and in quite a few illustrations. These denizens of the deep are ambiguous creatures, symbols of good and evil, of power and wisdom. My fifth chapter leads one on a journey through the landscapes of fairy, through enchanted forests where we meet tree beings in one book or ents in the other, and depictions of the world tree. Or, in Tolkien's case, two world trees. The two trees of Valinor. This was also in the Book of Ishnas. In both red books, many of these trees emanate their own light. They bear celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, stars, in their branches. 
Sometimes the text in one red book will describe the content in a drawing from the other. So for example, Jung writes, I look, to the right it is dark night, to the left it is bright day. The rock separates day and night. Tolkien painted this image to accompany his Silmarillion cycles, and it's one of the last images in the Book of Ishness. Here we have two images designed with remarkably similar composition. On the left is the first illuminated letter in Jung's Red Book. On the right is the last drawing Tolkien ever made to illustrate his own Red Book. Both show a striated landscape, the lower third underwater, hills rising into the background, the sun's rays extending dramatically. In Jung's, there is a triple conjunction of the moon, Jupiter, and Saturn in the left corner. In Tolkien's, the star Erendil, which represents Venus, glimmers faintly in the morning sky in the same position. And both symbolize each man's cosmology, although in different ways. My sixth chapter engages with the cosmogonic myths both Jung and Tolkien wrote. Creation stories they composed just three years apart, in 1916 and 1919 respectively. In this chapter, I also explore the role of Christ in each work, particularly the absence or the veiled presence of this figure. And finally, I engage with the nature of evil a pair of images I find particularly striking are these. On the left is one of Tolkien's many illustrations of the Eye of Sauron. On the right is an illuminated letter from one of the pages of Jung's Red Book. One of the most profound areas in which Jung's and Tolkien's visions and respective worldviews overlap is around the nature of evil. They both had a deep understanding of the nature of evil. They could address its presence in the world, show the importance of confronting it on behalf of personal and collective transformation. Within The Lord of the Rings, the clearest view we are given of the Dark Lord is his great eye, an image of malice and hatred made visible. Amazingly, Jung also had a description in his Red Book correlating to Tolkien's Eye of Sauron. Jung writes, nothing is more valuable to the evil one than his eye, since only through his eye can emptiness seize gleaming fullness, and it drinks it in by means of its eye, which is able to grasp the beauty and unsullied radiance of fullness. It sees the most beautiful and wants to devour it in order to spoil it. The single eye that symbolizes evil is an eye that looks only outward. It doesn't look inward. It doesn't self-reflect. This eye cautions against the refusal to look deep into one's innermost self, to face the shadow within. Looking only outward, one becomes subsumed by that shadow, blind to it from within. Indeed, both Jung and Tolkien even use the same term shadow to refer to this darkness that must be confronted. My final chapter looks at two primary figures in both Red Books, the wisdom keepers. The first of these is Philemon in Jung's Red Book, and in Tolkien's, it is Gandalf. And I conclude this chapter in homage to the other wisdom keeper, she came to Jung as his soul. He thought she was his soul, and he would later come to call her the anima, 
But I believe she is even more than this. Looking to Tolkien's Red Book, we see this figure in other forms. Galadriel, Elbereth Gilsoniel, and most importantly, the Queen of Fairy. She is the anima mundi. J.R.R. Tolkien and C.G. Jung were offered a gift, an invitation that allowed each of them to cross the threshold into the world of the imagination. There is a reason it's called the perilous realm. It's dangerous to enter this domain and folly to wander its paths without a guide. If one isn't careful, madness can ensue. This is what Tolkien means when he says, lest the gates be shut and the keys be lost. The doorway can shut and one can find oneself locked eternally in a world of symbols without the ability to return to the external world or to connect again with others in the realm of consensus reality. Or one can be shut out forever, living in a world devoid of enchantment, believing life to be little more than the struggle for survival making up meaning as a way to get through one's daily toil. Jung and Tolkien entered the Mundus Imaginalis during a time in history and as part of a modern culture that didn't see the spiritual, the numinous, or the imaginal as part of the natural world. They each came of age in an era of disenchantment. The world had been scoured of its angels and demons its elves, dwarves, and dragons. The starry sky was merely a void. The moon and sun only atoms and energy. Trees were only a source of wood and high mountains only a repository of coal and minerals. Where did they go? The lost beings who were no longer believable, no longer real. They retreated into the imaginal world to await a time when they might be rediscovered there, seen by those who had eyes to see. The Queen of Fairy, the Anima Mundi, extends an invitation to those who are willing to cross her threshold, to return to that realm and behold its wonders and its terrors. She asks those who tread the pathways of her realm to give her a gift in return. The gift of remembrance. Please record your experience, whether it's in song or tale, in painting or poetry, or in the quiet memories shared with a loved one. Believe that these experiences are real. There's a bridge between here and there, and if you've had the privilege to cross it, leave a trace so that others too may find their way. And someday, when enough people return with eyes and hearts and minds open to the Mundus Imaginalis, they will remember that this is our world. The two realms have only been falsely separated. The bridge walked between realms doesn't go only in one direction. And perhaps the denizens of fairy can one day return to the natural world. Perhaps we are facilitating the return of the queen to her full domain. Thank you. That was Becca Tarnas's doctoral thesis presentation. And next, we're going to hear 
Becca taking questions from her doctoral panel. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. In your discussion of Tolkien and Jung's parallax visions, right? Uh, I love the I love the image you presented. Both of them, sort of having a different vantage point on something similar. You do a great job of showing us these images and presenting these parallels. And I think you make a compelling case that what they're exploring is not not merely fantasy in the way that that language is regularly used, right? So not what Tolkien meant by fantasy, but the dismissive way people talk about mm -hmm. fantasy. But I'm wondering what governs or what are, the, what are the rules that govern whether or not something is actually a vision of something real mm. or uh, if it's an illusion. I was reading Iamblichus, the Neoplatonic theurgical philosopher from antiquity the other day, and Iamblichus has, he has this point where he's talking about meeting with the gods, the daimones, the heroes, and things of that sort. And in uh, chapter 6, and it's, it's very similar to the kind of a sense that Tolkien and Jung both go on, and some of the parallels that you draw between their cosmogonies and the Gnostics and stuff. And in chapter 6, Iamblichus says, but some of them tell the truth, and some of them are boastful and arrogant and false. Uh, and... And so he gives a whole set of ways to try to determine whether or not the visionary encounter is veridical or if it's just an illusion. He doesn't <clears throat> go the route we would, which is, is it just projection or whatever, but that's also in the mix. So I'm wondering, what, what, what are the criteria that you use to determine that? And then maybe what are the criteria, related question, what are the criteria that Jung and Tolkien use to know whether something has the ring of truth, whether they're exploring a similar geography rather than uh, a similar fantasy in the denuded sense? That's a good question. <laughs> I think I want to start by looking at how Jung and Tolkien approach that question. And as part of my own answer to it, that ambiguity is, I believe, inherently part of these visionary experiences, the fact that the question is even there is part of the inherent nature um, of these experiences and the doubt that they bring up and then therefore the belief and the faith that has to accompany them uh, in order to in some sense verify that, that they are real. I know that for Tolkien, there was so much ambigu ambiguity and doubt around this, and you really have to kind of glean his letters and uh, even what he put within his stories to get a sense of what he's, how he's trying to make sense of this. But repeatedly, he's talking about being reporting something that happened to him and this feeling that comes up that he wasn't inventing he wasn't making it up and Jung very much is using similar language this conviction that uh, this is a real experience and it's not fleeting 
Um, I think that in part, I know that uh, Jung was searching for parallels to his own experience. He was looking back through history and he found a um, number of different individuals and he was particularly struck by the Gnostics uh, with their experiences that paralleled his. And then when he found alchemy, he actually just set aside the Red Book and stopped working on it because he's like, oh, this is it. This is what I went through, what these alchemists are writing about. Um, I think he would have been fascinated to know that what Tolkien was going through and creating and that he also had a red book because Tolkien provides a modern parallel in the same time period. And so in some sense, it comes back to that parallax view that it's about finding a consensus reality, not in this external world, but actually a starting to develop a consensus reality in that imaginal world and being able to share what the different visions are. And I find that for me, one of the keys to following that is synchronicity. And so I'll find that when I share a synchronicity with another person or with multiple people, then we can all have that experience of wow, is that real? Is that a part of our world? And it's that shared experience in some sense. And so I guess part of that, um, part of my answer then would be is that it's a community activity, that it can't be done alone. Um, and of course, these are themes that I explore within the narratives of both Red Books, um, but particularly Tolkien's that it is about a fellowship, that nothing can be accomplished by oneself. There's no um, single hero accomplishing the tasks. It's always done um, in community and in relationship. And so I feel like that is part of how to establish some sense of these visions are real, is when um, they are shared. And that's why I concluded with um, the importance of recording your experience and remembering it. And in some sense, having the, the bravery to share that that has happened. Um, Sonu Shamdasani, who uh, is the editor of Jung's Red Book, after the Red Book was published, he got countless letters from people saying, I thought I was the only person who had experiences like this, that had visions like this. And this is affirming that I'm not the only one or that they're not pathological. Um, so, yeah, I think that finding community consensus is part of um, establishing whether these visions are real um, and being able to, to bridge between the two domains. Otherwise, it becomes a situation where one is purely locked in that realm of symbols and no one can verify with you mm -hmm. that uh, what you're seeing is what anyone else might be seeing. When you were talking, it kept, it kept reminding me of um, in the Ainu Lindale, when the first of the, the Ainu are, are created, they begin singing alone, mm -hmm. right? And each of them has, in, in singing alone, each of them has a kind of vision of the divine. Mm -hmm. That's their own song. And they only begin to learn the rest of it by hearing one another sing and mm -hmm. joining together, which struck me as a kind of a parallel to what you're describing. Yeah, uh, I feel like
Tolkien embedded in so much of what he wrote the meaning of what he was going through at the same time. And so his um, stories actually act as an interpretive lens in many ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so they, the Ainur all come together and they sing, and it's when they come together as a group to sing, that's when the world can come into being, as opposed to being these separate visions. Mm -hmm. There's so many paths to follow with this material. It's so tremendously rich, and you've so, done such a wonderful job of evoking especially the parallels between Jung and Tolkien. I would like to try and put a little bit of pressure to start pulling apart some of the differences mm -hmm. which you said you paid less attention to, at least in this, uh, this little presentation. You mentioned that Corbin's idea of the imaginal world as a kind of a metaphysical ground for the parallel you draw between Tolkien's realm of fairy on the one hand and the domain of what Jung calls the collective unconscious. I just want to ask if you see any critical differences mm -hmm. between especially fairy on the one hand and the collective unconscious mm -hmm on the other. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the fact that Jung would have no trouble at all seeing Nazism or fascism as a kind of welling up of aspects of the collective unconscious. Whereas to ascribe that same kind of image to fairy would not be so natural. I don't think Tolkien would, would make that kind of a translation. Or maybe he would. So I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit about, sure. you know, the differences between fairy and the collective unconscious, uh, as well as the, the parallax. Yeah, I've I brought all of these terms together, and in doing that, and also in working with my committee, was able to start to see more of the differences, or what I had assumed to be greater similarities. I feel like there's more of an equivalence between um, the mundus imaginalis and fairy, for, as um, Tolkien describes it and as Corbin describes it. And the more I focused on that, the more Jung's collective unconscious started to seem like something quite different. Mm -hmm. And it was actually by bringing um, a participatory perspective into dialogue with all that that it, I started to be able to hold together these inherent differences and yet recognize that there's an overlap here. Um, for Corbin, the mundus imaginalis is a, a sacred domain and so as you're, as you're saying something like um, Nazism isn't going to arise as um, kind of an archetypal expression out of that domain. Um, whereas that is very fitting of how Jung is describing the collective unconscious. Jung is in many ways limiting himself by his um, commitment to a Kantian perspective and so he's holding uh, all of his observations of these experiences and of this realm within a framework of this is part of um, the human psyche and the experience of the human psyche and therefore the collective unconscious is uh, made up of all past human experiences. Hillman calls it um, he prefers to just call it the weight of human history. And I don't feel that it's just the weight of human history that is what is present in the imaginal realm or in fairy. Uh, I would 
hold, though, that Tolkien probably could see some of those much um, darker elements in fairy. And that's why Mordor's we... In Mordor is in fairy. Dragons are in fairy. Um, it's a pretty heavy place in some regions. And so in some sense, you could almost see fairy as bridging uh, Corbin's idea um, of the Mundus Imaginalis and, um, and Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. But I feel like in some sense, Jung's con concept... Um, don't provide a full framework to interpret what he went through. And that's why it felt important to turn to Corbin and to turn to Hillman and also to turn to Tolkien to kind of break it out of those boundaries um, of keeping that simply within the experiential realm of the human psyche. And rather, is this something that is about more than that, about the cosmos, about the divine? And that's more what you find in the Mundus Imaginalis and in Fairy, and the understanding of it as um, a co-creative inaction between the uh, individual human imagination and a non-determinate divinity, you could say, or non-determinate archetypally patterned divinity, um, is how I started talking about it. But these, I think I'm going to be contemplating this part yeah. of uh, what I've been trying to articulate for the rest of my life. I hope I will be. Um, these are the deep mysteries. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't equate them. It's also true, it seems, that uh, while Jung's idea of the collective unconscious doesn't have the, the same sacred quality, it does give a purchase on human history mm -hmm. and human evil. Mm -hmm. So you could look at Nazism or many other phenomenon that will remain unnamed <laughs> at present as this what you were speaking about is imaginary visions that mm -hmm. are shared but are somehow distorted mm -hmm. distortions of archetypes so that might be an interesting you know idea to think about too mm -hmm. i mean relation as well to, to melkor mm -hmm. you know this notion of a distortion or a shadow and Jung's, you know, idea of the collective conscience might help thinking about, you know, not excluding mm -hmm. the way these archetypes get distorted. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's also where I feel like the participatory perspective helps, because in reading these two red books, they're often, for me, come up questions around individual biases on the part of Tolkien and Jung. Um, there's certainly elements of misogyny in, in both and racism, and is that really also echoing to the truth that they were uh, maybe accessing, or is that part of the co-creative inaction, and it's being shaped and um, in some sense distorted by their own life experiences, by the cultures in which they're raised, by the assumptions and so forth. Um, so that helps kind of account for that and let you see through it as well. I look at your work as reinvesting scholarship with imagination, psyche, and soul, so thank you for that. Thank you. And I'm thinking about the nature of the program that you're graduating from, and I, I was wondering if you could say a few words about the ecological implications or lessons in this convergence of the two red books for our time. Definitely. 
It's interesting because that's actually when I originally came to this program, I wanted to write about um, Tolkien, ecology, and imagination. And then I stumbled across the two red books, and that became that's everything. That became my focus. Um, but that's always been kind of underlying. Um, what are the ecological implications of having a re-enchanted imaginal perspective on the world? And I, part of what um, I found in both Red Books is how vibrant and alive and sentient the landscapes are. And so I have a whole chapter called The Landscapes of Fairy because we encounter these forests that are covering the threshold bet between realms. There are trees that um, are these sacred trees that have uh, celestial bodies in their branches. And then, of course, there are all of the parts of our world that show up in the Red Books, like the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea. And all of these qualities of our landscape that in, some, in so many ways we're actually isolated from in, in cities and civilization. And I actually find that, and I've felt this from a very young age, that when I felt most like I was walking through Middle Earth was when I was just out in the natural world and would see you know, the spires of mist rising through the redwoods. And that felt like enchantment. More than any kind of expression of um, seeking something that we might call magic or something that is uh, fantastical. I feel like I can't use words anymore, though, like fantasy and imagination, with, because I've kind of redefined all of them as something that's real. Um, and that they derive their sense of unreality, imagination, fantasy, when we say, oh, that's just imaginary, or, oh, that's just a fantasy, not from the word fantasy or imagination, but from those degrading words, just or only. And in many ways, I think that's what we've done to the natural landscape, too, is that's just a tree, or that's just a rock. And being able to, in some sense, rediscover the elements of our world through fairy, through the imagination, we can actually recognize that all of that is here. All of that is part of our world. And I don't have any kind of, I don't know, overly rosy visions that that will just kind of change the trajectory of where we're going. Um, but for individuals, it can. And for individuals, it can sh start to shift that relationship to the landscapes that we call home and that we are utterly dependent on and recognize that those are the places where these beings of fairy, these denizens of fairy that both Jung and Tolkien encountered in their different red books, where we can find them again in a certain sense. There's this image from Corbin of when you go to the Mundus Imaginalis, you go inward up until the point where everything turns outward again. You find yourself on the outside of the convex sphere. Uh, and so you go in and the world then opens out into a natural landscape again. And it's these very elements that I think are calling us back into that realm. I so resonate with what Craig said about 
your work returning soul to scholarship and mm. there is something really wonderful about the way you include your experience in your first person voice throughout your dissertation as a model and it's really a delight to read and to have worked with I want to push you to also think about what Hillman would call the sort of spirit side mm-hmm. and I think the way to, to do it is like you I love the image of the medicsy right the, the in between mm-hmm. that you invoke a few times in your dissertation, that the imaginal is sort of this in-between realm. But I want to ask you to what extent we can also think, as it were, about the influences from below and from above. And what I mean by that is, if we're thinking about Jung and Tolkien from below, to what extent are there shared imaginal experiences and are there shared the, the similarities between the Red Book or the fact that they're both white guys smoking a pipe? Can that be illumined just by sort of like the ordinary tools of scholarship, paying attention to mm-hmm. textual reception, cultural history, sociological conditioning? You know, mm-hmm. they're both Europeans who grew up in an area where dragon tales are present and so forth. So that's the sort of from below side. Mm-hmm. And then the from above side is um, to what extent do you think, and here I'm asking you to speculate, maybe you could on what Tolkien and Jung think. Jung's pretty cagey about it. Tolkien maybe has a little more to say. But to what extent, if there is a shared realm that they're exploring, if there's a geography of fairy, not just a geography, but a dramatic structure of fairy that repeats in not just the monomyth, but the undoing of the hero's journey and all this stuff, to what extent is that grounded in metaphysical or theological source that uh, provides some right where how does fairy live what are the conditions of possibility for a world that we can participatively engage in that's so that's my from above and my from below well i'll start with from below um and i feel like that has been an important element for interpreting the parallels between the two red books because there is a shared cultural history between them and so we can look and identify Norse mythology influencing what both of them are writing and certainly the Judeo-Christian tradition and the folk tales and legends of Europe they were both very much inspired by the Germanic legends and so on and so I think that's a really important layer in some sense to identify all of that and then say okay why are they still similar why are there such particular correspondences in so many cases that can't simply be reduced to like a fairy tale motif or a Jungian archetype and in my introduction actually I talk about how I'm not doing a Jungian reading of Tolkien or a Jungian reading of both red books because first of all that's been done on Tolkien and so I didn't feel that I should do it again but also there can be a reduction that happens equating of well this means this and this means that and the stories get kind of twisted and conformed into a pattern that doesn't actually reflect the particularities of what they are and suddenly you lose the the mystery and the feeling and what drew you to both red books in the first place 
But I think that's an important layer to identify all of those and see, yes, we can recognize in Philemon and Gandalf the archetype of the wise old man. And they're even more similar than the archetype of the wise old man and forming both of them is going to count for. As for from above, I definitely think Tolkien would be much more comfortable answering this than Jung because this actually comes back to Tolkien's idea of subcreation, and the reason he calls it subcreation is it's creation under God. And so the gift of the images arising through imagination is a gift given by God. And in some sense, he felt that by subcreating fantasy, by creating a secondary world that the mind can enter, and when you enter into that world, what is related is true in that world. Tolkien felt that doing so was actually, in some sense, furthering the efflorescence of creation. That that creative gift, the creative imagination that's given to human beings, was given by God. And so he says, fantasy is and remains a human right. We make in our measure and our derivative mode because we are made. And not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. And so... I think for Tolkien, that answer is very, very clear, that it's God that's standing behind it. And he has this great phrase, he's like, God is the Lord of elves and of men. And that was very much part of his worldview. We're listening to Becca Charnas defending her doctoral thesis. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Young would be more hesitant with that. So I almost want to look within the Red Book itself for that answer because a major part of the narrative of Jung's Red Book is the rebirth of God in this realm. And he goes through this experience of encountering a God of the old world who is wounded by his scientific materialism and this God is dying and he suddenly has this idea, he's like, if I can convince him that he's a fantasy, then I can get him off this mountain. And it takes a while, but he eventually convinces the god that he's a fantasy, and he's able to carry him down the mountain, which parallels this really beautiful scene in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when Sam carries Frodo up Mount Doom, and they both mirror the story of St. Christopher carrying Christ. There's more there, but I won't get sidetracked. But what Jung is doing is he's recognizing that fantasy actually has the power to save the life of God. So Nietzsche has declared God to be dead and Jung encounters in the imaginal world God and through this process facilitates the rebirth of God and God is so much bigger than when he first encountered him and ascends. So in some sense, for Jung, I think that from above gets actually pulled back in and down and through into that, that middle realm. 
And I kind of see it as a process, and this is some of the material in relation to the anima mundi, that we're in a process of if fantasy can save the life of a god, and then we recognize that fantasy in itself is real, but a different order of reality, then the gods can be reborn in a time where they really need to be reborn. Yeah, so it reminds me of Barfield's statement that I love so much, where Barfield says, Pan isn't dead, Pan has closed up shop, but he hasn't, he hasn't died, he's just gone indoors. <laughs> yeah, and um, maybe we're in the process of opening the, the door again, yeah. I'd like to um, give you a chance to speak to what you feel are the most salient values mm. represented by Tolkien on the one hand and Jung on the other, whether and potentially some differences between those, acknowledging that they're both working with the imaginal, um, but there are you know, some quite weighty differences between two men and I want to pick up on one of the very interesting observations he made in the thesis an observation that Tolkien seems often more invested in seeing good and evil mm. as clear opposites mm -hmm. that's borne out very palpably in the some level in the Lord of the Rings which is a struggle between good and evil Whereas Jung seems at times invested in, in, in the ambiguity mm -hmm. and that, at, uh, you know, this, the serpent or dragon is not just evil, but is maybe very positive in a certain respect. So how, and, and this is, you know, part of his answer to Job too, you know, the, the intertwining of good and evil. So just kind of throw the floor open for you to see what each of these wonderful authors is kind of uh, is a kind of central core value with respect to issues of good and evil. Mm -hmm. um, I feel too that I just want to kind of set parameters around what I can answer in relation to Jung because right. I've in the scope of the dissertation focused uh, on most on Jung as he was in the, the Red, Red Book, Book period. Um, yeah, and so Jung changed um, yes. a lot, and so I'm mostly going to be speaking to the, to, um, the Red Book Jung. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien, I can kind of give a broader sense because, in part, um, just because I've studied his whole life in in greater depth, but also because his Red Book period extended over a longer period of time. Um, I think that's right that when you approach both red books um, it it appears that in Tolkien's you see this very clear um, polarity between good and evil um, and it that seems quite stark uh, you have the Dark Lord Sauron you have the free peoples of Middle-earth fighting for their um, their lives and the, their freedom, their um, independence, and with Jung, it is much more ambiguous. And uh, the the serpent that slithers all the way through the pages of Liber Novus um, 
carries those qualities so much that she is um, antagonistic and yet she's wise and she's a guide and um, and yet she kind of pushes in relation to Jung but I feel like um, below that it starts to get a little mixed up because uh, a lot of that ambiguity is coming from the figure of Jung and I'm saying the figure of Jung because Jung includes himself in the Red Book but he is in a sense also an imaginal figure in that realm um, he is extremely antagonistic with these figures as they emerge and so um, when he sees evil in the other is he really seeing evil or is he just really uncomfortable in the fact that he's in these fantasies right now and does he really want to be taking in what they're saying and so some of that starts to kind of break down and when Philemon is being um, accused of all of you know being a betrayer and all these horrible things is he really that or is Jung learning a painful lesson um, and then in Tolkien too they seem to be good and evil seem to be quite split and yet um, there too, you can see how they blend and I think one of the kind of places that holds them together is around the idea of power. Um, so all of the most powerful figures in Middle-earth, Gandalf, uh, Elrond, Galadriel, they all reject the ring because they absolutely know that because of their power they will become instruments of evil. Um, and and, and you see that with, uh, with the climax of the story, too, that it's only possible for the ring to be destroyed because um, Frodo has to become evil. Um, in some way, there is no other choice. And so, again, in these figures, the most angelic figure of Frodo, the most Christ-like, he has to fall in order... Um, for the ring to be destroyed. And you can see that echoing all the way back up through the, um, uh, through Tolkien's cosmogony, where that ambiguity is right there at the beginning um, in the creation of the world. Are you seeing um, evil introduced by one figure, this kind of Lucifer like figure, or is he an, an expression of God's shadow? Um, so reading the two of them together starts to blur the lines in both directions, um, I found. And as for the most salient values, um, there's this wonderful story about Tolkien. Um, late in his life, he received a letter from a man who considered himself to be an atheist, but he was just kind of having um, dawning religious feeling and he said to Tolkien that his book has a sanctity to it that um, is like light from an invisible lamp it's everywhere but you can't locate the source and the the way that that light uh, is present in uh, Tolkien's stories what we identify as the light I think are his most salient values, the kind of the moral guidelines um, that he's kind of embedded within the worldview. And on the one hand, it's a Christian worldview, and on the other hand, um, it's that's all been soaked into the symbolism of of the story.
So, Becca, there's, here's these two men who, if you were to ask either one, are you a Gnostic, would probably <laughs> deny it. Um, Tolkien, on the one hand, is a fairly traditional Catholic believer, and yet, as, as you and Lance Owens and other people um, have noticed, there was this huge upwelling of Gnostic imagery, both in Tolkien's work and also in Young's Red Book. And so I want you to speculate a little bit as to why that is. And I don't mean the why so much in terms of their personal psychologies, but maybe the bigger why, the historical why, or the what were the gods up to with this with this huge influx of Gnostic imagery? Why? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, well, I know if I were to ask them both directly, they would say, no, absolutely not. Um, looking at Jung, we have more, um, which you've of course written about, more evidence uh, of what Jung's exposure to Gnosticism was, e even at the time that he was working on the Red Book. Um, he definitely was reading the available Gnostic texts um, in 1915, and he may even have encountered them earlier uh, when he was working on Transformations and Symbols of the Libido, which was published in 1911 and 1912. Um, not all the Gnostic texts that are available to us now were available to him then. Um, and as far as I've been able to uncover, uh, it I don't know if Tolkien would have actually directly read any Gnostic material. He was quite young when he wrote the first version of um, his cosmogony, the Ainu Lindale. Um, and I, I feel a certain amount of doubt that he actually would have had direct exposure to Gnostic material, <coughs> considering his upbringing and uh, what he would have had access to and what he wouldn't have. Um, and I think he would have, just as because he was a devout Catholic, he would inherently have said, no, I'm not a Gnostic. But it is very interesting that these two uh, cosmogonic myths that the two men wrote, uh, just three years apart, have all of these Gnostic elements, uh, very explicitly so in, um, in Jung's, where uh, it's the seven sermons to the dead, and it begins with the pleroma, and then moves through to uh, the emergence out of the pleroma um, of God and the devil, and um, kind of all of these different structures of uh, the Gnostic creation myth. Tolkien's creation myth carries these elements, but they're hidden under um, the names that he was using um, that were coming through for him. And so I think that I want to give different answers for each of them. Um, for Jung, I think again, it's that kind of blend of what he's been exposed to. Uh, externally, the material he's taken in, um, and then how that participates in his visionary experiences. Um, for, for Tolkien, it seems like those elements really were um, just coming through. And here I kind of want to look to, this kind of ties back into your question actually around um, the role of good and evil in in both texts because it's no accident that they're writing um, they're having their red book periods uh, in conjunction with the first world war and 
that Europe is being torn apart um, by this war and all clearly evil is present but who who is evil um, can you actually blame uh, the evil on another every person every um, each side is in some sense both embodying good and evil and right and wrong and I think this is very much informing um, these two creation myths that were written um, either during the war or right in the wake of the war in some sense to try and make sense of what happened um, to make sense both um, consciously uh, for these individuals but also uh, to make sense in a larger um, mythic context of um, what is the nature of of the divine if this level of evil can erupt so unexpectedly um, as the Great War was. So many people didn't expect it to be like that. Um, and so these Gnostic myths that both men um, wrote in a certain sense or that have Gnostic elements, I think, are reflective of the tensions and the um, oppositions of good and evil that were inherent in the world at that particular time and we're really coming to a peak and then of course I think are still relevant as we continue to live in a war-torn world. This question in some ways relates to the question that Jake posed relating to he said he wanted to go from, from above and below and this it does in, incorporate elements of both but wants to look a little bit more at the nature of, of the above uh, from your understanding you brought in early on Jorge's mm -hmm. participatory uh, understanding though as Jorge posts it as, as, as I've understood him uh, his project was largely um, looking to deconstruct a, a perennial perennialist perspective of the transcendent um, and yet when we're you know, if we're, if we're looking at this this project you're doing, these two men who enter an imaginal world, and there's these stark similarities. You had mentioned something that's indeterminate but archetypal in pattern. So my question is, for you, does this seem to indicate that the imaginal itself, or the divine itself, does have this deep archetypal patterning in some ways, their experiences and the parallels between them are expressive of that patterning endemic, or is there, you know, Jorge talks about different modes of participatory enactment, creating different spiritual realities, it's like an ocean with many shores, mm -hmm. is there maybe a reason in terms of Tolkien and Jung that they're historically contemporaneous and they're geographically relatively proximal to one another? that led them to kind of happen upon a similar shore. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've worked constructively with uh, Jorge's ideas and uh, in some sense I'm applying parts of them to this and not using all of them and I've been um, kind of turning an archetypal lens into reshape to a certain extent what Jorge is saying and so um, he talks about an indeterminate spiritual mystery and I'm positing a non-determined archetypal divine and 
that in some sense posits maybe a little bit more of a there there than I think Jorge would be willing to give. But the fact that you can see these kind of large archetypal expressions come through the world's religions, that there is some kind of patterning there, but at a very, very deep level and in a non-determined way, rather than completely indeterminate. And this is something that I think I'm going to be engaging with for a long time. I don't feel like I have the answers by any means. So, thank you. And that was Becca Tarnas defending her doctoral thesis. And we have on the line somebody who has something to say about what we've been listening to or or some thoughts that he has. Hey, Antonio, uh, thank you so much for taking my call. I don't know if you're a call-in show anymore, but uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Every time you have Becca on, I uh, enjoy that that talk. And I might have called in before and told you um, that, um, well, so here's my point for today, is uh, there's life after PhD thesis. So if your friend's <laughs> ever part up for a book idea, it doesn't sound like she will be. It sounds like she'll be investigating uh, what she has. Um, for perhaps the rest of her life. But uh, if you ever bump into her again, you should tell her Charles Darwin had a red notebook. Um, it's simply called The Red Notebook. I think uh, Sandra Hebert back in 1980 did the, did the work on it. I did a quick web search to see who has uh, worked on it and, and looked over the red notebooks. Um, now, that's 100 years earlier. 1820s or 30s would be Charles Darwin. And it, he would be the yin to her yang. I mean, she has two mystical authors there, or possibly Gnostic, or, um, you know, people in the fantastical realm. And here is a guy who took a voyage on the Beagle to see what existed in the world, because, um, you know, the earlier literature, the 1700s, is all this fantastic imagination about what there was around the, around the world. And by the, and when they got uh, ways of telling longitude and latitude and c- could get back to where they'd been before, they suddenly realized there aren't all these Patagonian giants and, uh, you know, seven, ten-foot-tall men and stuff. Um, there were all these fantastical stories. And when, uh, when the explorers, the discoverers, quote-unquote, uh, the imperialists, when they got out there and saw what was out there, they wrote it down. And that's, in a way, the death of the imaginal world. So um, if she ever needs a book idea... Um, you know, just get on the old internet there and get uh, Darwin's Red Notebooks. I think they're all scanned, and um, she has she has a lifetime of work ahead of her. Thank you so much for your show. Hey, stay on for a second. Okay. I have a com- quick comment on that. So back over 100 years ago, in Darwin's time, he was he was venturing out and exploring the unknown of his time, and that's a lot of what these two fellows were also doing in their own respective realms. Um, certainly, um, I was I was more in line with her discussion of uh, maybe psychology and its relevance in in, in that realm. I'm not uh, a very fantastical person. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm more of a you know nail down what can be known and what can't be known. Um, you know, mull it around a bit. Um, and and kick it on to the next generation. Perhaps they'll figure it out. Um, I don't think Darwin is the last word on um, human 
Uh, th- this is a hard one to this is a hard one to begin here um, because this is my unwritten PhD thesis as we speak, um, and maybe I'll never write it. I don't know. But Alfred Russell Wallace once said that that natural selection could not act on the human mind. And uh, Darwin wrote back to him in a letter that said, I hope you have not murdered too completely your child and mine, and with Wallace being the uh, co-discoverer of natural selection. So uh, Wallace was holding out for a spiritual uh, sort of um, uh, analysis of where human intelligence and human mind came from. But I think uh, most scientists of today would be taking much of the mystery and fantasy and spiritualism out of it and would speak more of cultural evolution and uh, perhaps cultural processes, which we have not yet reduced. Well, most of us do not know of a nice, easy, neat mathematical equation that can describe cultural evolution. Uh, most of the people who are hitting on the perhaps the what seems to be the best solution is something that looks like natural selection but actually is different. Uh, takes place through culture, and you know you could read Dawkins and Dennett about memes, and you can decide whether or not they're. Some people think they are way too. Uh, oh, what's the word? Rid, uh, rigidly uh, deterministic. Yeah, in, in, I think which I don't think they are, but I um, do. I definitely do, but but that's just a difference of opinion. But but uh, Russell's thing on on the mind. Well, the the mind is is not something that science has been able to really pin down in in a materialistic and deterministic way, and any attempt to do that doesn't is not convincing. So, well, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, certain things have been nailed down pretty good. Uh, I had a book um, uh, by uh, Lieberman. How? Uh, I have to warn you, we have less than a minute, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Well, uh, let let me hurry up then. Uh, um, It it was about, um, it it talked about functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And uh, fMRI has gotten much better in the last 10 or 15 years. So where people, you know, they play music and they light up the parts of the brain. And and so they're getting better and better at at seeing what a thought is, perhaps, inside of their their microscope. Well, what they're seeing... what what they're seeing are the physiological effects of it. They're not seeing the mind itself. The mind is still this nebulous thing. What you're talking about is brain activity, and that's that's where the that's where the challenge is. There's a threshold that is difficult to quantify. Although some people, like like your your friends Dennett and Dawkins, think they can do it. I I totally totally disagree but I, I think we're nailing down some of the harder points um but there but are I, a lot of we points have to go and i'll leave open to you and i'll get off but um i will admit there's a lot that is not known and perhaps study for another century or two all right exactly. thanks so much for your show Bye. you're welcome and that's it for this magical mystery tour thank you all so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week